Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with tomorrow's hearings by the Senate Judiciary Committee to deal with the need for an ethics code of conduct at the Supreme Court after the Chairman Dick Durbin was rebuffed by Chief Justice Roberts who declined to testify and following recent revelations of unreported favours from a billionaire to Justice Thomas, Gorsuch's sale of a hunting lodge to the head of a law firm with business before the court, and the Chief Justice's wife's $10 million in earnings from law firms also with business before the court. Joining us is Moira Donegan, a writer-in-residence at the Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, whose work has appeared in the London Review of Books, Book Forum and the Paris Review. She is a columnist at The Guardian, where her latest article is The U.S. Supreme Court's Alleged Ethics Issues Are Worse Than You Probably Realize. Then we'll look into today's White House visit by President Ferdinand Barcos Jr. of the Philippines, at which President Biden pledged that U.S. military ties with his countries are ironclad, with the 1951 Mutual Defense Treaty intact that would ensure the U.S. will defend the Philippines if it were attacked. Joining us to discuss China's alarm at growing military ties between the two allies that it sees as interfering with Taiwan is Sarang Shidore, Director of Studies at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, whose areas of research include geopolitical risk, grand strategy and energy and climate security, with a special emphasis on Asia. Then finally, we'll discuss Biden's electoral strategy for his second term now that he's announced he is running which has prompted one of his Republican opponents, Nikki Haley, to suggest he will die in office, obviously trying to bring up Vice President Harris as an issue the GOP wants to seize on. Joining us is Simon Rosenberg, a political strategist and the former president and founder of the New Democrat Network, a leading progressive think tank and advocacy organization. Previously, he was a writer and producer at ABC News for five years before working on the Dukakis and Clinton presidential campaigns where he was a member of the 1992 Clinton War Room. He now writes the Hopium Chronicles newsletter on Substack. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising, as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Moira Donegan, who is a writer-in-residence at the Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. Her work has appeared in the London Review of Books, Book Forum, and the Paris Review. She's a columnist at The Guardian, where her latest article is The U.S. Supreme Court's Alleged Ethics Issues Are Worse Than You Probably Realize. Welcome to Background Briefing, Moira Donegan. 
Thanks for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Moira. And Chief Justice Roberts essentially stiffed the Senate. There was a bipartisan call to have an ethics regime at the Supreme Court, which it doesn't have when the rest of the judiciary does. But tomorrow, the Senate Judiciary Committee will be holding hearings on the Supreme Court ethics reform, or the lack thereof, and all the stories, including the stories that you've been writing, are clearly out there in the public's consciousness. So do you think that in the broadest sense, it's at least it seems clear to me, that there's been a plutocratic capture of the Supreme Court? Well, Ian, you, you've seen the Supreme Court shift dramatically further to the right uh, than the American public really quite quickly. You know, it's always been, or for much of its history, it has been a quite conservative body, uh, not historically very comfortable with or amenable to uh, popular movements uh, for social justice or expanded democracy. Uh, But it has moved really quite dramatically to the right over the past uh, 10 years or so, and particularly since the Trump administration uh, reshaped the court. And, you know, there was already a decline in trust in the court, a decline in the sense of the court's legitimacy. You know, the court was already uh, coming to seem in the imagination of the American public out of touch, unduly powerful and concerningly unaccountable to the other branches. And then the Dobbs decision uh, almost one year ago, I believe we're speaking on the one year anniversary of the leak of the Dobbs draft opinion. Uh, and this really accelerated what was already a trend of the court's delegitimization with more and more Americans understanding it as a organization that's, you know, not accountable to the other nominally co-equal branches, uh, not in touch with the American people, ideologically motivated. And now, based on these new revelations, uh, it seems more and more enthralled to the improper influence of the very wealthy. So do you think that the evidence about Justice Clarence Thomas's relationship to Harlan Crow, who is this peculiar billionaire who has a fascination for Hitler, he, he has a painting signed by Hitler along with a signed copy of Mein Kampf and in his garden, a sculpture garden full of busts of hideous dictators. So that's all been revealed. And then now we learn that Gorsuch has sold his uh, hunting lodge to the head of a big uh, corporate law firm and that Justice Roberts's wife earned about $10 million in the last few years uh, with very big Washington law firms, some of which have dealings with the Supreme Court. Harlan Crow himself, his real estate companies, have had dealings. They tried to stop the uh, COVID rent relief uh, program, etc., And, of course, Justice Roberts dutifully voted to strike it down. So is there an accumulation of all this stuff that's hitting them? But at the same time, Roberts' refusal smacks of a certain arrogance that, you know, these guys are in there for life. So how much can you shame them into the recognition that they've lost credibility with the public and were always told that credibility is precious to them? Yeah, I want to add that also there was a few months ago a corruption scandal involving Samuel Alito, whose intimate connections to a group of uh, far-right donors to the conservative legal movement uh, seems to have included, you know, allegedly leaking to them the outcome of the Hobby Lobby decision before that was made public. Uh, And, you know, there is uh, a roading sense of legitimacy in the court. You know, the court... um, 
legitimacy is supposed to be what they have. You know, they don't have a military the way that the executive branch does. They don't have money the way that the legislative branch does. Uh, what they have is, you know, other people's belief in their legitimacy. So as they lose, uh, you know, the pretense of being arbiters of the law and look more and more like these, you know, partisan hacks whose time uh, appears to be for sale, uh, you know, that will erode the power of the court somewhat. But, you know, in order for that to happen, you have to have an opposition that is willing to confront the court, that is willing to, uh, you know, acknowledge the capture of the real whole federal judiciary, but in particular the Supreme Court as a constitutional crisis. You know, there's a brewing constitutional crisis that we have on our hands. And uh, we don't seem to have right now a Democratic Party that's entirely willing uh, to confront this crisis. Well, the other subject, which, you know, one of the peculiar things about American politics, Moira, is that two of the most important aspects of politics are not considered appropriate in polite company. You don't talk politics and you don't talk religion. Well, the Supreme Court has been captured by far-right Catholic ideology, the guy that chose most of these majority, this supermajority, Leonard Leo, is one of these Opus Dei guys, and along with the Federalists and all the dark money that he's corralled, including recently $1.6 billion from one donor alone. What troubles me is that there's a lack of diversity, given the enormous Catholic majority on the court, and two, the lack of diversity within the Catholic faith itself, having these far-right Opus Dei influence by one man who's simply not just shaped the Supreme Court, but also shaped the federal judiciary, and that's Leonard Leo. Yeah, there is a uh, strong presence of mom, like religious presence uh, on the court. And, you know, I am of the opinion that I think is like pretty uh, foundational to a pluralist society that like people of sincere religious conviction are not a priori incapable of being neutral arbiters of the law. Uh, however, these justices have behaved in a way that um, sort of strains that premise. So, you know, in particular, they have interpreted the First Amendment uh, religious dictates in such a way that the free exercise clause, uh, you know, allowing individual citizens to practice their religion without uh, you know, interference by the government has really cannibalized the separation of church and state clause, the establishment clause, uh, which would prohibit the government from establishing religion. So more and more you have this court interpreting the free exercise protection to allow individuals to practice their faith, at least uh, if it is a, a Christian faith, uh, sort of to the detriment of the rights of others and to the detriment of the functioning of the state. So you see in the... Um, Kennedy versus Bromerton School District, the uh, like sort of kneeling coach case, uh, the court seems poised to allow a public employee to pray in public during the ex execution of his, uh, you know, government funded duties and uh, at, at a school. And that case seems to um, have invited a slew of other sort of like prayer in school uh, bills in the states that are now going to sort of try and push this uh, attempt to, you know, really establish religion in public schools even further. And, you know, I do think 
you also see in, you know, the court's increasing reliance on this supposed like history and tradition standard, this like reversion to an imagined past as a source of legitimacy for laws that seek to uphold social hierarchies and as a weapon against, uh, you know, any effort by the state to sort of mitigate or undo uh, historical hierarchies of, say, you know, race or gender. So we have a supermajority on the Supreme Court that seems to be motivated by two things, laissez-faire capitalism and moral authoritarianism. And I'm just wondering, though, how do you make the public argument, given that if you if you accept my premise that it's difficult or not acceptable in polite society to talk about religion, when it seems obvious to me that there's something wrong when you've got a supermajority belonging to not just one faith, but, you know, an extreme version of that one faith, or at least a far-right version of that one faith. You've only got one Jewish justice and one Protestant justice. So is this this something that can be discussed? I mean, I talk about it, and I get the feeling that uh, people don't necessarily appreciate that and somehow think it's religious bigotry to talk about it, but I'm talking about, you know, just we are a multicultural, multiracial, and multi-religious diverse society, but we don't have any diversity on the Supreme Court. Well, you know, I do think that there is a case to be made to the public that the Supreme Court, as well as their allies in the Republican Party, are sort of, you know, they are acting in ways that are hostile to the pluralism that is essential for a democracy and also, you know, something that ordinary Americans quite value in their own lives. And, you know, these are decisions that are unpopular. These create realities that are unpopular. You know, people don't like having the Bible shoved down their throat. They like having, uh, you know, enough trust and freedom uh, to, you know, make those kinds of decisions for themselves and to live uh, in diverse communities. So I don't think, you know, it necessarily needs to be uh, pointing to the identities of these justices to make that point. I think their actions are making that point uh, pretty clearly. And, and, you know, the polls bear that out. The confidence in the court is at the lowest that it's ever been or that it has been in quite some time. And, you know, people are really um, not happy with the vision of the nation that the court is putting forward and, you know, increasingly outraged by, you know, their um, like quite arrogant, as you pointed out, uh, sense of impunity and, and uh, invulnerability to basic checks and balances. So then, is the solution then, Moira, for the Democrats to win big in 2024, to take back the House, increase their lead in the Senate, get past the filibuster threshold, and for Biden to win, and then expand the court? Well, you know, the Biden administration and the Democratic uh, leadership more broadly have been really hesitant to confront the judiciary. You saw, you know, there was like in Biden's renouncement video that he released for last week, there was like a flash of uh, a frame of him next to his uh, Supreme Court appointee, Ketanji Brown Jackson. Uh, and But there wasn't, you know, there has not been from the Democrats a ton of, um, you know, aggression or sense of urgency as the courts accumulate tremendous policymaking power for themselves and, you know, uh, scorn any attempts at oversight. So this has really quickly become a branch that is uniquely powerful, like far and away the most powerful, uh, but uniquely unaccountable with um, no 
obligation, you know, that they that they seem interested in to uh, abide by an ethics code. No uh, way to force them to, you know, come and, and be uh, held accountable to the Congress and no way to make them answer to the voters. So what I think we really need is a Democratic Party much more willing to be aggressive against the court, much more willing to message against the judiciary, much more willing to say, if you vote for us, we'll put in judges who aren't these crazy fringe radicals who aren't sex obsessed, who aren't going to enter into your bedroom, who aren't going to let your, you know, conservative coworker uh, dictate your life. Uh, we are going to put in justices who abide by basic ethical standards and who, you know, respect pluralism and dignity. And we've got somehow got to get Senator Dianne Feinstein back to work, right? Yeah, you know, it's part of the uh, tragedy of this is that, you know, the Senate Judiciary Committee um, issued a request to John Roberts, as you mentioned, to ask him to come testify about these ethics concerns about the Supreme Court. He declined. Uh, and, you know, the next logical step, if we had uh, a Democratic Party willing to take it, would be to subpoena uh, Justice Roberts and make him come. Uh, you know, you don't get to decline if there's a subpoena, but uh, that would require a majority on the Senate Judiciary Committee of Democrats to vote for that subpoena. And we don't have one right now because Senator Feinstein has been MIA. Well, I, I'm not suggesting more that the Democrats should talk about <laughs> stacking the court. I think that's a political loser, but it certainly it seems like at the end of the day, if they can get past the filibuster threshold, it may be the only solution because they're in for life. That's uh, the way it is, right? These are uh, lifetime appointments. They can only be removed if they are impeached and removed. And the way that our Congress is working right now, uh, that's not an actual option. So I think stacking the court is probably one of the only uh, real options the Democrats have if they don't want to have this very ra radical uh, federal judiciary reshape American life in ways that would be unwelcome and unrecognizable. And just in closing, if they embrace the independent state legislator theory, then you, you mentioned just a minute ago, Moira, how they're accruing power to themselves and overriding the government's expertise in making judgments on clean air and clean water and, and health and safety, et cetera, and, and immunization and all these important government departments that have the expertise. And so these nine justices have, have substituted themselves for that. And that's appalling. But if they do the, the independent state legislature, then they've completely you know, re-engineered American democracy itself. Well, you're, you're pointing to two different issues, Ian. One is the independent state legislature theory, which it seems that the court has punted on for now. The uh, lower court's ruling uh, was made moot, and so it looks like we will be spared a Supreme Court decision on the independent state legislature theory in this session, uh, although it is you know, an incredibly dangerous theory that would threaten to uh, basically moot the uh, premise of American democratic elections. But you're also talking about a case that they uh, granted cert on just uh, this morning, uh, asking the question of whether they should formally overturn Chevron deference, which is a principle that federal agencies under the executive branch have the ability to make their own rules for things like, you know, consumer regulation. And that would open the door to 
a uh, you know a, a federal court judge uh, like issuing an injunction saying that you know seat belts are no longer required in cars things of that nature and that could be a very dangerous world indeed well i'm glad we've been spared the independent state legislature and thanks for updating me on that and but the other other fear still the chevron deference still is looming right yes and uh, i think you know i think we are not going to be terribly surprised on how the court rules on that question. Well, that's a declaration of war against the government itself. I thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it, Moira. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Moira Donegan, who is a writer and resident at the Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. Her work has appeared in the London Review of Books, Book Forum, and the Paris Review. And she's a columnist at The Guardian, where her latest article is, The U.S. Supreme Court's Alleged Ethics Issues Are Worse Than You Probably Realize. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into today's White House visit by President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. of the Philippines, at which President Biden pledged the U.S. military ties with his country are ironclad. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sarang Shadore, who is a Director of Studies at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, whose areas of research include geopolitical risk, grand strategy, and energy and climate security, with a special emphasis on Asia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sarang Shadore. Thank you very much, Ian. Great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And President Biden held a meeting today in the White House with Philippines President Ferdinand Marcos Jr., where he said that the U.S. is committed to the defense of the Philippines, and that commitment is ironclad. And also, of course, we know that the U.S. is expanding bases with the the Philippines in the South China Sea, particularly uh, in the northern islands of Luzon, close to Taiwan, which has certainly got the Chinese annoyed. The Chinese ambassador to uh, Manila has accused the Philippines of stoking the fire of regional tensions by offering these expanded military bases access to the United States and saying that the goal of the Philippines is to interfere in China's affairs with Taiwan, which, of course, the Marcos National Security Council spokesman responded Uh, saying that the Philippines has no intention of interfering in the Taiwan issue. But, Sarang, the Taiwan issue is not going to go away, right? Not at all. In fact, it's getting worse, uh, it seems, every passing uh, couple of months. So where is it heading? In other words, is uh, this visit going to further annoy the Chinese? The visit by itself, I don't think, is a problem because uh, the U.S. and Philippines, of course, are not just partners, but allies. They have a formal alliance. uh, And in any case, President Biden receives many foreign leaders in the White House. So this is by itself not an issue. The issue really from the Chinese perspective is the fact that the U.S.-Philippines alliance has started to materially 
position itself in ways that seem to intrude into the Taiwan question. Uh, by by this, what I what I mean is that the U.S. and Philippines have a checkered history. Uh, there's of course a history of colonial U.S. rule and then independence granted to the Philippines, and then later on. Uh, U.S. support for an authoritarian uh, leadership of uh, Marcos Sr., which led to him being overthrown at some point, and then in, in the late 80s, and then the new Philippine Constitution, as well as the Philippines uh, Senate, basically ended the American presence in the Philippines. The U.S was there in terms of two very large military bases in the Philippines for decades, and those bases were shut down. But since the early 90s, when that happened, the U.S. has been creeping back into the Philippines militarily. Uh, so we had the uh, Visiting Forces Agreement in 1999 that was essentially a agreement that allowed U.S. troops to visit for training purposes and so forth and covered their status while they were in the country. But then most seriously in 2014, which was a period of difficult relations between the Philippines and China, the U.S. also signed uh, an agreement with the Philippines called the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, or EDCA for short, EDCA, those are the acronym letters. And EDCA allowed, uh, allows the U.S. to have what are officially called agreed locations, but are really sort of base-like uh, presences within Philippines, military bases, where the U.S. can mark off an area and have operational control over it and station troops and materiel. And so EDCA's first incarnation was five such locations that were positioned in the center and the south of the country and next to the South China Sea. The current flap with China is because there have been a new round of EDCA sites announced in the last couple of months, three of which are located, as you said, in Luzon, in the main island of the Philippines, Luzon, but in the northern tip of Luzon, or right very close to the tip. And that, if you look at the map, uh, Luzon is separated uh, from Taiwan by a relatively narrow channel uh, known as the Bashi Strait or the Bashi Channel, uh, where potentially if there is a U.S.-China clash would be very sensitive in terms of military operations. So the fact that these new U.S. military sites are so much closer to Taiwan than they were before uh, worries the Chinese. And they do have some grounds uh, for feeling uh, encircled or threatened in, in this particular case, although their claims in the South China Sea are, uh, are a lot less uh, justifiable in my view. So the U.S. and the Philippines are still bound by a 1951 mutual defense treaty, as you pointed out, Sarang. But obviously there's been a change, has there not, from the Rodrigo Duterte administration, which had made closer ties with China, and now it seems that Marcos Jr. is reversing those policies. Is that right? 
That's absolutely right. I think Duterte is, uh, uh, President Duterte is six years in the Philippines, were a time of very difficult relations with the United States. Uh, he was in many ways a Filipino nationalist uh, who had uh, real reservations about the relationship with the U.S. and with the United States. He never visited the U.S. Uh, he tried to build bridges to China, uh, not entirely trusting it, but nevertheless, uh, in many ways, was much warmer to China than to the U.S. And in that process, uh, a lot of these agreements like EDCA that I just mentioned could not uh, or did not develop. Uh, there were no new facilities announced. Uh, there were real curbs on uh, uh, any kind of U.S. military cooperation with the Philippines. They were limited. And there were a lot of diplomatic disputes on questions like human rights and so forth in the Philippines. So the Duterte era was a very much a different time. Marcos Jr. in a very short time period, in, in months, has substantially reversed that trend. But we should keep in mind that the Philippines is marked by this kind of politics, that there is volatility that swings back and forth between presidents when it comes to the alliance. For example, the uh, the president, uh, a prior president before Duterte was uh, President Aquino, who was very friendly to the U.S. And that's the time when actually the Philippines took China to court uh, at The Hague and won a very important case uh, on the South China Sea dispute. And then before, but before President Aquino, there was uh, President Arroyo, Gloria Arroyo, who was much warmer to China. She kept a good relationship with the U.S., but she was certainly much friendlier to China than uh, than President Aquino was. So my point being that Philippines' domestic politics swings, uh, but what we are seeing with each swing, that the U.S. is uh, gaining ground, it appears, in the last, if you look at the last four uh, cycles or so, the overall trend is that the U.S. is gaining ground, literally and figuratively, in terms of its military uh, presence in the Philippines and joint military cooperation. So, obviously, Biden is not bringing up <laughs> Marcos Jr.'s father, uh, who we recall was a kleptocrat and a thug who murdered his political opponent, Benino Aquino, just as he got off a plane full of press returning to the Philippines, and he's barely down the gangway when he was assassinated on the tarmac. And there's still an outstanding court case against uh, Marcos Sr. and the family, I guess, in the U.S. court with a judgment of $2 billion against them for plundering wealth under the rule of Marcos Sr. And, of course, we all remember his... Uh, wife's uh, pension for collecting shoes. So what's the difference with Junior and the father? I mean, is how much is he tainted by his... And of course, he can't be sued in any way in the United States because he's a head of state. Yeah, so of course that all of this is in the courts in the U.S. And there's no doubt that uh, President Marcos uh, grew up as a son of a former president and had a... Had a uh, you know, let's say a well-off life. But uh, how much is that an issue? Well, it becomes quite interesting there because the United States 
And by the way, Joe Biden himself was quite a severe critic of uh, President Marcos Sr. But now when it comes to taking on China, has essentially decided that this is not important, uh, that all of that history and the court cases and the allegations of profiting uh, from, uh, from the wealth and so forth are not, uh, are not germane to the strategic uh, relationship, indeed the, the overall relationship. So here we see again uh, uh, Washington uh, looking the other way when it comes to uh, allies or partners who are not democratic, uh, and then nevertheless talking up democracy versus autocracy as a guiding principle. It's not really practiced. Uh, in any tangible sense. Certainly in Asia, uh, we see the U.S. acting very much as a, uh, as a you know, realist player, which uh, is what most major powers do. So, for example, not just with the Philippines, also with Vietnam, which is not a democracy, the U.S. is going all out of its way to build uh, closer ties so the reason is because both Vietnam and Philippines really have serious disputes with China, and they can, if brought closer to the U.S., uh, the U.S. believes can be, a, if not, if Philippines is an ally, but Vietnam could be a partner, a closer partner on the security front as well. So just in closing then, Sarang Shidori, the Asian countries that you mentioned, Vietnam and, and the Philippines and, and Malaysia and uh, Singapore, are growing economies. Uh, they're going to surpass, collectively, they'll surpass Japan, won't they, soon? Yes, they will. They, in 2030, they're projected to overtake Japan and become the fourth largest economy. It makes sense to call them an, an economy because ASEAN is very much an integrated economic zone. It's also integrated when it comes to people-to-people -to -people travel, uh, cultural exchanges, and so forth. So they indeed act in many ways economically in a coordinated sense, and they absolutely are. Uh, if there's one region of the global south, the developing world, as it used to be called, that has shown really remarkable economic performance for 30 years, barring that late 90s crisis from which it recovered. There was a financial crisis in a Southeast Asia in the late 90s, but it recovered really fast from that. And even from COVID, it's recovered really fast. Uh, and that region would be Southeast Asia, is ASEAN. ASEAN is really one of the most, perhaps the most economically successful region of the developing world. So in, in many ways, the U.S.-Philippines relationship actually has a lot of content beyond security. There is, in fact, the Philippines, uh, Marcos has said that uh, the economic aspect is really important to him. Uh, the numbers are really good. Last year, the Philippines grew at 7.5 plus percent. Uh, which is which is its best uh, performance in decades. So it, you know, it, ASEAN and Philippines uh, as well are attractive destinations in their own right. And this is where I think Washington can perhaps focus more on than uh, seeing them, in, you know, predominantly in terms of uh, China containment uh, strategy. So just in the last minute, then, Sarang. Is it possible that as things get worse between the United States and China, that there'll be 
more American businesses moving into ASEAN for, for their manufacturing, like, for example, Apple, which is highly dependent upon China, where most of its products are made? It's already happening to an extent. So you're seeing Malaysia and Thailand, for example, in Vietnam, uh, benefiting from some of the movement of supply chains from China. But I wonder how far this can go. The fact that so many supply chains are pres present in such complex forms, interweaving through these countries. China and Southeast Asia are deeply integrated economically. And to disentangle all that and to try and divide this space into friends and enemies and then try to line up the economics in that manner looks like a bridge too far. Now, some movement certainly will happen and ASEAN states will be the beneficiaries of that. But if there's too much movement, if there's a attempt to um, decouple or radically change the supply chains, then ASEAN states would actually be losers. And so would the US in the process, because then you're getting serious ruptures in the efficiencies and scales that these disintegrated region from really all the way from northern China and Japan down to uh, Thailand and Singapore and Indonesia uh, represents for uh, the world, Asia and, and US uh, and the US as well in terms of uh, its economic uh, future. Well, Sarang Shidori, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. Wonderful to be here. Well, thank you, Sarang. And again, I've been speaking with Sarang Shidori, who is Director of Studies at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, whose areas of research include geopolitical risk, grand strategy and energy, and climate security, with a special emphasis on Asia. We can take a brief station break and back looking into Biden's electoral strategy for his second term now that he's announced he's running, which has prompted one of his Republican opponents, Nikki Haley, to suggest he will die in office, obviously trying to bring up Vice President Harris as an issue that the GOP wants to seize on. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Simon Rosenberg, a political strategist and the former president and founder of the New Democrat Network, a leading progressive think tank and advocacy organization. Previously, he was a writer and producer at ABC News for five years before working on the Dukakis and Clinton presidential campaigns, where he was a member of the 1992 Clinton War Room. He writes the Hopium Chronicles newsletter, on Substack. Welcome to Background Briefing, Simon Rosenberg. It's always good to talk to you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's an interesting piece about you at the Washington Post recently, Simon. And we spoke also throughout the 2020 elections where you predicted that the red wave would uh, peter out and the Democrats almost held onto the House, you know, by a whisker. So you're predicting that, again, the punditry is wrong in writing off Biden in his second term? 
Yeah, and let me say, I forecast. I don't predict. I, no one can predict the future, right? But I give it my best shot. And um, and what I would say is that I think much of the same dynamic that we saw play out in 2022, which was, you know, the fear of MAGA was the dominant force in the election, is likely to be the case in 2024. I mean, whoever, whether it's Trump or DeSantis, I mean, what we're seeing is a Republican Party that's continuing to uh, grow ever more extreme. Uh, it wasn't standing pat, it's getting worse. And I think if in 2022, I think a lot of commentators discounted the ugliness of MAGA. And I think people are already getting back into the kind of he said, she said, both siderism that's sort of downplaying the significance of what we're seeing. But I don't think, I think voters aren't downplaying it. I think voters understand that what they're seeing is a Republican party that since in the last three elections, um, you know, we've litigated MAGA in the battleground states and it hasn't gone well for the Republicans. We've had three elections in a row that have been sort of at the upper end of what was possible for us as Democrats. So as we head into 2024, I would much rather be us than them. And I'll just leave you with one other stat, which is that, you know, we didn't just do well in 2022. We, we you know, or hold our own. Yes, we gained a Senate seat and state legislative chambers and governorships. But we gain ground in Arizona, Colorado, Georgia, Michigan, Minnesota, New Hampshire, and Pennsylvania, critical battleground states. We got stronger there in the battleground. And it means that whoever the Republican nominee is, the hill they have to climb to defeat Joe Biden has gotten higher uh, because of our strong performance in this last election. So look, it's gonna be a tough election like all elections are, but as of today, I'd much rather be us than them. And what do you think is happening at the state level? Because you have so many supermajorities in the Republican-controlled legislatures, and we saw that play out in Tennessee. But what was hopeful and encouraging about what happened in Tennessee was that these two, particularly these two young African-American lawmakers who were booted out and then reinstated, apparently have galvanized and massive amounts of young Tennesseans and others in Tennessee and what many analysts are suggesting is that what they're indicating now is that in these red states where you have Republican supermajorities, you're much better off as a Democrat talking about core Democratic values like gun safety uh, and election protection, etc., and going after the right wing head on as opposed to trying to be kind of Republican light and not want to touch gun control because everybody's got a gun. Do you think there's something happening there yeah, in the broader I, zeitgeist here? Yeah, I do. I do. And I think you've seen it in the protests in Israel. And I think you've seen it in Bob Iger, the head of Disney, really going after DeSantis in a very aggressive way. I think there's a broad awareness that they've gone too far. However, whatever it is, whatever the issue is, there's this sort of basic fundamental reality in America today that they've gone too far. And we need, as I talk about in that interview with Greg, we need to recognize that the Republicans by giving into this extremism and extremists are ceding political terrain for us that we have to go seize. And I, I talk about how we need to be thinking about 2024 as an expansion year, an expansion election cycle. We should be thinking about how to take the Biden 51% and get it all the way up to 55 nationally, but also to do that in every state as well. And we have to grow rhetorically, geographically, demographically. We have to take what's available to us 
uh, and take it away from them. And it would it's the best thing that could happen to the Republican Party would be for MAGA to be for this election to be perceived as a massive repudiation of MAGA. It would be good for us. It'd be good for the country. It'd be good for them, frankly, because I think they're you know, they are have lost control of their party to extremism in a way that could cause brand damage for them for a very long time. And, you know, they're pretty soon it's going to be very hard for them to ever come back under the Republican brand, you know, to proceed to pretend that there's something like a normal center right political party much longer. And so I'm I'm optimistic that now many years into MAGA, that people there's an anti-MAGA majority in America and that how far we can grow that majority, how big we can get it, how much terrain we can seize is really up to us, I think. And in terms of our ambition, it's like man on the moon, right? I don't know how exactly we're going to get there, but we need to go get there. And look, we just, I, I in my talk, I say, look, in Colorado in, in 2022, in a bad year, so-called bad year, we got to 59%. In Pennsylvania, we got to 57%. We got to 55% in Michigan. We got to 54% in New Hampshire. We just got to 55% in Wisconsin, the Supreme Court race. And I think that we can, you know, we, the next big race for me is this race down in Jacksonville, Florida, the biggest city in Florida. It's a Republican held uh, mayor, mayoral seat. And sorry, that's my talk. And uh, sorry about that. If you can hear it, of course, the postman comes in the middle of the interview, right? And rings the doorbell. Um, but we can, Jacksonville, Florida has an important mayor's race in two weeks where we can go get a win right in Ron DeSantis's home terrain, take away a place that's been theirs. And that's the way we got to be thinking now. It's not about repositioning or playing it safe or holding on to what we got. It's about growth, expansion, taking more rhetorical, geographic and demographic real estate away from the Republicans. So you mentioned uh, Colorado. They just passed a assault weapons ban, which reinforces what I was just suggesting, that you know, rather than in red states, or in that case a purple state, rather than be afraid to take the Republicans on head on on, on issues like gun safety, you're better off now because I think the public, is, the mood has shifted. I mean, I talk to parents all the time who just don't want to live in a country where you send your kids off to school and don't know whether they're going to come home. I mean, that's just unacceptable. Yeah, so, look, can I say something about that? Navigator, a great polling outfit that puts out a poll every two weeks so you can look at things over time. It's a, it's a democratic consortium of pollsters. Polled recently the question of what do parents want out of, for their schools, right? I mean, list of 10, 12 things. Number one was our kids not getting shot. Right. <laughs> and number seven was like the woke stuff. Right? I mean, it didn't even like get into the top two or three for real parents. And, and, and I think it's I think, look, they over they I think the Republican Party misinterpreted um, the election results in Virginia in 2021. They thought it was about woke and CRT and all this. And it wasn't. It was about covid. And. It was that the fear that parents had about sending their kids back to school. People didn't really feel ready. Um, and they've misinterpreted it. And if you look at poll after poll, I mean, even in Florida, you know, DeSantis, my favorite poll done recently, six-week abortion ban in Florida, 22%. Permitless carry, this thing that DeSantis has, has passed, 23%. The uh, anti-CRT woke stuff, 35%. I mean, they were operating way outside of public opinion on issue after issue after issue. 
And what's interesting to me, and I wrote over the weekend, that the one area where they're very competitive with us is on the economy, right? And in some polls, they're ahead of us on the economy. And it's possible that Kevin McCarthy is about to destroy that too, um, you know, and push him away from voters too by pursuing economic strategy that would accelerate recession and default. Um, and so I think that they are, we're witnessing a political party that is sort of operating more outside of conventional wisdom and sort of, you know, where people are than we've seen in my adult lifetime, or at least in my time in politics in the last 30 years. And that's why we we have to recognize that and go on offense, go big, expand, and try to take away as much political real estate that I think is now available to us everywhere, right? This is a universal opportunity, whether it's in Tennessee or Wisconsin or Jacksonville, Florida, people get it about what's going on with them. And, and I think they're stuck. I think they're in this sort of doom loop, as I call it. Um, you know, they that, you know, they're getting more and more extreme in part because the, you know, Fox News's viewers needs more red meat. They need more stuff to keep people watching so they can keep making money. So they have to keep producing this extremist content. And they've gotten caught where they can't get out of this loop, where they're going more and more extreme. And, you know, it's terrible for the country and for the people of Texas and Tennessee, but it creates a massive political opportunity for us that we have to take advantage of. But just touching on McCarthy and the debt ceiling standoff, uh, which John Boehner referred to as legislative terrorism, I mean, you essentially have some a man standing in a tub of gasoline threatening to strike a match. So who's going to call who's bluff? Because at the end of the day, Biden is saying rightfully that this has nothing to do with the budget. This is a separate issue, paying bills that we've already incurred. And this debt ceiling shouldn't even exist. It's a legislative relic. So do the Democrats go ahead and let uh, McCarthy tanked the global economy, or what do they do? How do you call this guy's bluff? Because we know the radicals pushing him are completely nihilistic. I think it would be very dangerous for us to negotiate and cut a deal here with him um, because we set a precedent now um, for other legislative terrorism, as you call it. And I think that it's our obligation to continue to work within the system of government that we were given in the 18th century. We've been producing budgets the same way for a very long time. What McCarthy's trying to do is unprecedented. It has no analog in American history. And as you pointed out, it's this freaky legislative relic that should have been eliminated a long time ago, which by the way, has been used more by Republican presidents than by Democratic presidents. I mean, we could go through the cynicism of it, but the practical reality and I think we have to wage, this has to become a central focus for all of us in our discussions and our politics now, led by the president, that we're, in a time when we've had bank failures, we've had, we're moving towards recession, what Kevin McCarthy is doing is making it more likely that we go into recession and more likely that we have a financial crisis. He's promoting policies that are pushing the country towards economic weakness and recession we're promoting policies that are pushing us towards growth and uh, and health and a healthy economy. We have to establish that contrast. It, that's not where the debate is right now. And I think that, I think the administration has rightly so, they've had other things. I don't think that Kevin McCarthy's defined the terms of this debate. I think that he's just more cogent. He spent more time talking about it. So we, we who pay attention, 
think that he's got kind of an upper hand here. But I don't think that's really true with the public. He's, his standing with the public is very low. The standing of the Republicans is very low. And if we define what Kevin McCarthy's doing as something that will bring recession and financial collapse, we can crush them in this debate. And I think that we have to, but we have to engage it. And I think the administration has begun to engage. They've been doing other things. There's time. But now this is the whole this is the whole game now. We have to we're in an economic debate and a fiscal debate with them, and we have to win it. We have no choice. If we lose it, you know, the, the Biden presidency will be damaged. And we can win it. We're the facts and arguments are on our side, but you can't score unless you shoot. We gotta go have this debate. And certainly if you've been reading my Substack, you know, I've been arguing for two months that this conversation around the economy is the central discussion that's going to happen this year and that Democrats need to muscle up, get smart about the the details, which I'm sure you're helping everybody do, Ian, you're a smart guy, right, is that, you know, we got to muscle up and get loud here. We not This is not just up to Joe Biden to win this argument or the DNC. It's up to all of us. We need to be information warriors for our democracy. We have to be loud together and we have to help create a chorus, a very loud chorus, shouting down you know, these ridiculous policy, the ridiculous actions by Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans. What he's doing on the default and recession is just as extreme as what he's doing on guns, abortion and everything else. There's no difference. But we've got to make those connections and make this argument. I'm confident if we do, we can win, push their numbers further down and force them to perhaps concede. But certainly the stakes here are high and it's reckless and dangerous, unprecedented, whatever the words are you want to use for Kevin McCarthy to be pursuing this in the way that he is. It's reckless and dangerous for the country. And it's unnecessary. You know, we don't need this kind of brinksmanship right now. Um, We need to just get on with our lives. And he's, you know, he's, I think he's making, my own view is that he's making an enormous miscalculation, McCarthy. It's not surprising, right? When you've been overtaken by extremism and extremists, you lose touch with day-to-day reality many times. Right. Well, it's all going to happen next month, so it is upon us. Uh, just to, in the last couple of minutes, so it's just going back to uh, Abraham Lincoln's uh, Better Angels. Is there a possibility that the Democrats could run against hate? Because, I mean, after all, Biden says that's why he, he decided to run for the presidency was because of what happened at Charlottesville. Yep. So you've seen hate. You saw, the, I don't know whether you saw the outrageous behavior of Marjorie Taylor Greene attacking yep. a witness saying that she wasn't a real mother because she was a stepmother. I mean, first of all, these right-wing Republicans are all anti-abortion fanatics, and one of the arguments that anti-abortion fanatics have is that young women who get pregnant should go ahead and have the baby and have the baby adopted. So, I mean, they don't even make sense within their own ugly, nasty rhetoric. Yeah, look, I think... I think I'm very excited about the way that President Biden launched his reelection campaign last week. I thought it was, you know, the way I like to talk about it is that the the thing that's driven the last three elections has been the fear of MAGA. It's been the most dominant issue in our politics. It's the fuel that's created all the fundraising that we've done, the unprecedented amount of fundraising, the unprecedented amount of volunteerism. There's been a millions of Americans are standing up and not letting their country disappear and, and and slip into autocracy. And and so what he did was by framing the election as, as more freedom, less freedom, democracy, less democracy, 
he went right into that emotional core, right? He went right deep into that thing that all of us feel, this fear that we have that if we lose an election, our country slips away. And I was really proud of the White House. I mean, you could have anticipated, Ian, if we were talking, I think, you know, two weeks ago, we we may would have imagined an ad or a set of media that was much more conventional. You know, I've been a good president, the economy's grown, and we've made healthcare better, prescription drugs, the kind of kitchen table stuff that's very common in democratic advertising. That's not what they did, right? And if you look at the first ad and the and the first video, it's dr- full of words like courage and patriotism and, um, you know, freedom and American flag. This very, You know, so part of what I was saying earlier is that what we're in the process of doing or what we need to do is to not only take demographic and geographic, uh, you know, seize ground, but we need to seize rhetorical ground and take stuff away from them, which I think Biden is doing. He's taking away attributes that have in the modern times have been more associated with Republicans and Democrats. And I think it's brilliant. I was really excited, frankly, uh, about the rollout uh, last, last week. And I was at a small meeting in the White House on Thursday where I got to talk to some of the folks. And I will tell you, they felt it just feels very grounded. It feels very organic, the way that Biden connected it to the Charlottesville speech and talk about how we have to finish the job. You know, I'm, I, there was good body language with everybody. They feel, I feel like they're in the zone. I feel like they're reading the electorate correctly right now. I think they're making an intelligent judgment about where he is, where the country is, where the Republicans are. And I feel like they're in the zone. We're being well led right now, but there's going to be a real test. This this issue around default and recession is an enormous test for the administration, and it's one we have to pass. So just in closing, then Simon Rosenberg, Bernie Sanders is saying that Biden will win in a, win in a landslide if he <laughs> embraces policies that support working Americans in the middle class and not the as the Republicans do support the billionaire class, as Bernie often says. And, you know, frankly, it's pretty obvious that McCarthy, look at his last budget, it's all punishing the poor and rewarding the rich. And I don't think you have to be Einstein to notice that the Supreme Court has been captured by plutocrats. So do you think that that's also a winning strategy? Well, I think think that certainly it's going to be important the president to explain his economic approach and to use this uh, default and recession. This is not about this is not a fiscal conversation we're having. This is an economic conversation we're having, and we have a very strong argument about the president's economic track record, the track record of the Democratic Party going back, you know, 35 years. The um, and you know and the far-sighted bills that he passed last year that are going to be creating prosperity and investment in this country for a generation to come. I think that he's got a lot, you know, we know from polling that people don't know what he's done. They don't know about the three big bills. They don't know about the investments that are being made. They don't know how strong the economy is. We know all of this. We also know from polling that when you tell people about this and you inform them, Biden's numbers go way up. Right? So, you know, it's why my view has been that in this year, we have two big jobs to make next year successful. We One is we need to win the economic argument with the Republicans. We can do that. And we also need to launch a national voter registration drive with young people to make sure that we have the kind of youth turnout next year that we need across the country. 
I think if we can do those two things this year, it makes it much more likely that next year we're going to have the kind of election that we all want to have. And so, Ian, I'm optimistic about all of this. I mean, I think we're in much firmer ground than they are. I think they're running out of ideas. Their extremism has overtaken them. I think even the woke stuff has sort of played out. And it's not clear they got anything else, you know. And so other than jumping up and down and waving their arms up in the air every day about whatever is coming along the transom that day, and they just lost arguably their most significant, you know, propagandist, uh, Tucker Carlson, in the last uh, week. So, you know, I think I think we just have to stay focused, go on offense, seize as much terrain as we can, try to run up the score as big as we can. Um, but the first test of all this is going to be in the next few months around the Republican strategy to push the country into recession and default, and we have to, we can't let them. Win, and I think we can. I think we can win. Yeah, and then, and I appreciate the opportunity to have these kinds of thoughtful conversations with you. In our business, it's not. It's always a pleasure <laughs> to be able to air out this kind of stuff with you in such a thoughtful way. And I just appreciate whenever I get a chance to spend some time with you. Well, thank you, Simon. And again, I've been speaking with Simon Rosenberg, who's a political strategist and former president and founder of the New Democrat Network, a leading progressive think tank and advocacy organization. Previously, he was a writer and producer at ABC News for five years before working on the Dukakis and Clinton presidential campaigns, where he was a member of the 1992 Clinton War Room. And now he writes the Hopium Chronicles newsletter on Substack. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past Oh